Welcome all to another edition of A Positive Podcast, where we work to enhance our lives by exposing the tools that we already have inside of us. My podcasts are designed to be short inspirations that will take these proven methodologies of positive psychology and give you examples and deeper insights on how to practically apply them in your own life. In some other of my podcasts, I've shared some tips and tools. Today, as I will do on occasion, I interview someone who can share wisdom and life experiences that essentially do the same thing, teach you that you have or we have the answers inside ourselves. Today, we have the privilege of interviewing an amazing man, a musician, and a kind, creative person of Remy Garari, or as many people know him, of Remy G. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I know this is a very sensitive time, a very sensitive topic and the wounds are still very, very raw. So if I cross any lines, please don't hesitate to tell me and let me know because I think it's very important. So let me start off with, by asking you, tell me a little bit about yourself. I know you're a musician in Crown Heights, but give us a few minute background about where you are from and catch us up to today. Okay, first of all, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It's an honor to be on your program. I was born in uh, Cape Town, South Africa, where I lived till I was four years old. Grew up in Johannesburg, South Africa. Um, at the age of about 17, like many Lubavitcher young men, I came to the United States to go to Yeshiva. I was in Morristown. Um, went through the whole Yeshiva experience, ended up marrying an American girl for my green card. That's a joke. <laughs> That's a joke. Uh, <laughs> okay. And uh, I'm here ever since. I'm an accidental musician, meaning that I never intended to become a musician, but... Uh, a long story short, I met uh, Yasin Avi Pimenta, and we connected, and that's how it started. Um, I married my wife, Dini, maiden name Lipsker. We have three wonderful children, and living in Kwanites ever since. Wow. Okay. So, tragically, you lost your daughter recently. That's correct. And this is, of course, why we are talking today. And first of all, I want to commend you. For agreeing to talk with me your writings on facebook that you take your very public stance that you've taken on mental health issues and specifically with eating disorders if even one life is helped or saved and i'm sure that many are being helped by your openness it's going to be worth your public writings and talking on this important issue because one life is a whole world and being that this is so sensitive please take a few minutes to share as much as you're comfortable about your daughter's journey while obviously respecting whatever you need to keep private. Okay, so let's, before we do that, let's talk about privacy and uh, you didn't use the word stigma, but I'm gonna introduce it uh, to what I'm gonna say. Um, and there is a misconception about that. People think that if you don't talk about it, it's because there's a stigma about it. But as parents, we don't talk about it sometimes because we wanna respect the privacy of our children. Yeah. Um, and we did that, even though I'm quite an open person. Um, that stopped when she decided to go uh, public with her own story. So I think the question was uh, about her journey. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Okay. So um, when she when she was um, very young, I would say seventh eighth grade, it was it became noticeable that she had an eating disorder. An eating disorder, in her case, um, restricting or becoming anorexic. Um, in later years, there was there were binging and purging and so on. Um, as I know now, 
eating disorder is the most misunderstood mental disease. I'm here 10 years later, or 11 years later, I still don't understand it completely. Um, we, we started getting her treatment at the end of elementary school. And in truth, we didn't know much. So we just were going by what the doctors were telling us. They were helping us, they were not helping us, and so on. Um, then she went to high school. And just so you understand, uh, those that have an eating disorder, in many cases, I don't know if it's in all cases, just want to just, this disclaimer, I'm not a professional, so I'm just going to tell you from my own experience. But I can tell you from my own experience that in our case, and I know it's it's true in many cases, that the one suffering from the eating disorder keeps it very, very private and secret. And in order to to be successful in their own eating disorder, they try to keep it from those around them, their loved ones, and try to make it all, all appearances that they're doing well. And I yeah. guess that's what happened. You know, we, we thought that she was doing better than she really was doing. Um, she went to um, high school not in Kronheit. She attended a high school in the five towns called Medresha Shalavet. And um, she was super academically motivated and successful, quiet. She was always respectful. She never had a, re she was never angry, didn't have a rebellious bone in her body. Um, it was in her senior year in high school where actually a fellow student of hers noticed that something is amiss and she better speak to the school psychologist. And one thing led to another and she was taken again to see someone who was who, who had specialized in eating disorder doctor. And this is when the story became uh, more serious. Uh, my wife took her to the doctor and she was at the appointment and then my wife calls me up and says, Remy, uh, we're not coming home, we're going to the hospital. I said, why, why are you going to the hospital? And she said, Yechavid's cutting, self-harming. And I said, what's that? What is self-harming? Yechavid was cutting herself uh, on parts of her body that she was able to keep hidden. It took me years to understand what it is, and I still don't fully understand what it is. And because of that, the situation was very uh, apparent that it was quite serious. She went, she went to hospital in Westchester, Eden Disorder Clinic, um, which remained for about two or three weeks. Uh, from there, she did a step-down program in a place called Renfrew, Manhattan, which is a day program, also an eating disorder day program. We thought she had made strides, and she did make strides. I mean, she had, you know, she had written about that, she fact that, that she did make strides, especially after that. She took a gap year out of... Uh, after high school, and then she went to college. And she writes about the fact that, uh, you know, it became quieter. Her disease became quieter during college years. And she did very well in college, um, graduated with a degree in uh, psychology and a minor in neuroscience with a 4.0 GPA. Took another, took another gap year, actually ended up being two gap years, <laughs> where she traveled a little bit. She uh, spent some time on a forum. She started applying to to uh, nursing school. She went through to become a uh, psychiatric nurse practitioner. I think during this time after college, things got a little worse. And if I can make a connection between between um, inactivity and, you know, and filling your brain with, you know, things that are probably not good, or especially those people that are predisposed 
to mental illness, if they're not kept active, you know, it can get worse. Yeah. But in her defense, um, both after high school and after college, I, for one, encouraged her to take to take them some time off because she worked very hard in, in school and she worked very hard in college and I wanted to just be overworked. And I thought that was also very unhealthy at the same time. Um, do you want to just fast forward to uh, November well, 2019? Go ahead. You know, no, whatever you feel comfortable with that you feel will be helpful and yeah. go ahead, share. So I'm, not, I'm not certain uh, if I'm filling in all the details, but uh, I guess that's the main topic. So I'm just going to skip to November of 2019. Now, again, at this point, at this point, she was really seeing a psychiatrist for about a year. Um, and I learned much later, you know, the efficacy of, of drugs, what that means, but she was seeing a psychiatrist to kind of help, help her open up. We were looking for a therapist. We found, we didn't find, maybe it was half-hearted on our part um, and the, uh, the fear of cost and so on, but um, it wasn't it, it, it wasn't a concerted effort, put it that way. Not that we would have denied the therapy at all. You know, she had a therapist in, in, in at Brooklyn College. There were services she could have turned to over there. And then in November 2019, she had her first uh, suicide attempt. Um, and then things changed rapidly from there. Uh, she was hospitalized, first in Cornell, to physically stabilize her um, in Manhattan. And then she was transferred to a hospital in Westchester, which is a psychiatric institution. Um, this time she was not in the eating disorder unit as she was when she was in high school, she was put in the psychiatric unit. It's actually a from unit, orthodox unit. She wasn't thrilled about that. That's the truth of the matter. They put her there because, you know, they thought we're, we're orthodox, so put her in that unit. But, uh, you know, throughout um, high school and, and college, she had a variety of friends, most of, the, or most of whom were not orthodox and probably most of whom were not even Jewish. Mm-hmm. Um, very, very close friends. So she, but she was okay with that. She was more of a modern girl, I would say. Um, let me back up to tell you a story that happened right before this first suicide attempt because I think this should be instructive to those that are listening Um, that is we're from a Chabad family Chabad women do not um, and I wrote about this on Facebook so you're probably familiar with it but I'll just say the story Chabad women as many orthodox women do not wear pants there are laws of modesty and so on women do not wear pants Right before this first suicide attempt, she and I had attended. We went, on a, we went out at one night to the October 30th, because that's when they have it, the Halloween parade in New York City, Greenwich Village, um, which I've always loved. And we went together. We, we, you know, we had a great time. Um, and I noticed that she was wearing um, jeans, jean pants, and underneath a skirt. We were close, and she never wanted to affirm me. She never, she, again, like I said earlier, not a rebellious bone on her body. And I noticed that she was wearing jeans underneath her skirt, and I said to myself, this is crazy. At this point, she's already 22, 23 years old. She's an adult. She's struggling anyway, and we knew that she was struggling with eating disorder and body image and so on and forth. I, I thought to myself, you know, if she wants to wear pants, she should be allowed to wear pants. And I discussed it with my wife, and my wife said, you know, we should discuss it with other, others, Rabbanim and people that we trust. And uh, the consensus was yes. 
that uh, why not? You know, let's not put, let's uh, not add to her struggle and her pain. So we're gonna t- we're gonna talk to her about this, but in the interim, she had a suicide attempt. So my wife and I would visit her every day in hospital, spend t- every single day. This is pre-COVID. And uh, one day during that hospitalization, I came to her and I said, uh, "You know, you have it. I think uh, remember that 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 evening we had. I noticed you wearing pants. I think that's good." I said, "You should wear pants." I encouraged her to start dressing in that way because I knew it would uh, she would be more comfortable. And it was like a bur- this burden was lifted off her shoulder. And indeed, when she was dis- discharged from hospital, um, she bought a whole new wardrobe. And I told her, you know, I'll, I'll walk in the neighborhood with you and I'll defend you. And, I'll, and, uh, and if anybody, you know, criticizes, noth- none of that happened. There was tremendous support from family and friends. And uh, I think it helped her. You know, I think it was a, I think it helped her for that year. She completely changed the wardrobe. She was when she went to family events or community events. She was very respectful. So this is not a, like I said, another not a person who was rebellious. She was um, struggling, and uh, that's the way she had to dress. Yeah. Uh, fast forward to the whole idea of putting of not putting religion ahead of care, and that's one of the messages I want to get out there for those that are struggling and those that have religious f- families that never put um, religion ahead of care. And I think. You'll speak to any rabbi, and I'll tell you that. Um, especially when you're talking about a life and death situation, not a not a minor situation, but a major situation. Yeah. Right. So that was her uh, her first suicide attempt. After she, uh, should I just continue with the story? Is that is that okay? You have any please, questions? Please. Yeah, okay. Um, after she was released from hospital, she was um, the way it works in with these kinds of hospitals especially after a suicide attempt, they want to know what's what's going to happen next. So they released her to what's called, a, uh, I think it's called IOP or PHP, partial hospitalization. Yeah. Uh, IOP stands for, I forget, I think it was IOP. Um, I forget what it stands Individual, for. Individual, I think, I, I forget too. Um, yeah. It's a step down. It's, step it's down only a few hours program. a day. Right. right. It actually wasn't two hours a day. It was a full, it was a full day program. Oh, really? Okay, so it's probably PHP then, but okay. Yeah. Um, this was in Mansana, Manhattan. Um, she was there for a few weeks where she actually did very well. And one of the things she did very well with was uh, something called DBT, Dialectical Behavior Therapy, I think it's yes. called. Mm-hmm. Uh, she did very well with this, and uh, she was you know, really doing well. And she was going to be let go from this program. And we, we had a couple of family meetings with the uh, social worker, and uh, the discussion was, okay, what's next? And what was next was we knew very you know, clearly, since this was a suicide attempt, that we're going to have to pull out all the stops in terms of therapy, in terms of uh, psychiatry, nutritional uh, therapy, and so on. So the discussion was between the four of us, myself, my wife, Yechavet, and the social worker, what's next? So Yechavet was very open to therapy, and we were going to, like like I said, you know, whatever whatever the cost was, we were going to get the best therapist, which we did. And uh, but at the same time, we wanted to have nutritional therapy. Now, for those that don't know, you know, everyone knows what a nutritionist is, but there are actually those that practice as nutritionists that specialize in the area of of eating disorders. That's their specialty. So, you know, I could have gone to the local uh, nutritionist the doctor's office. The, our doctor himself told us, you know, we need to go to 
um, someone who specializes in eating disorders. There are actually two companies in New York that have a whole team of nutritionists that that's all they deal with is, uh, is um, you know, nutritional health when it comes to eating disorders. So there was, a, there was an argument. I wanted her to, um, to I kind of felt that if her brain was not nourished, if she was malnourished, then she would not be able to to uh, to attack the depression components of her sickness. And the psychiatry, we even found out at the time, or even later, that when it takes medicine, if your brain is not nourished properly, then it diminishes the like diminish returns. The efficacy of the drugs are not you know are not going to be there. So there was this argument, and I wanted her to have therapy and nutritional counseling. She refused, and the reason she refused at those meetings, she refused because. As we now as we now know, um, eating disorder is something that they have control over. They want to have control over, and as soon as you intervene, they lose that control. It's a, it's a symptom of depression, just like cutting is, just like sometimes drug use is. And uh, she she didn't want to let go of one thing she had control over, so she was very emphatic that there's no there's no uh, you know nutritional counseling. So the shara, the, the compromise we came up with was, and social worker told us, you know what, why don't we start with a therapist, have us see a therapist, and then three or four times into it, you know, the, the, the therapist, by the way, a therapist, again, who specializes in eating disorders, therapists will kind of get easier into having her go see a uh, nutritionist as part of the team, which, to which I agreed. This ended up being, instead of four meetings, it ended up being four months. Let me back up. Our personal physician suggested a particular a particular uh, nutritionist to, to go see. But of course, because Yechev refused to do this, um, we had to delay this, even though we had discussions with the, ther- with the nutritionist. By way of divine providence, um, about four months into this therapy, which was going very well, actually, she did very well in the therapy, uh, about four months into, th- the, into this therapy, the therapist emails my wife and I and says, you know what? I think Yechever will do very well with uh, yoga. And there's a person starting a class in yoga, and perhaps she should uh, attend this yoga class. And when I saw the email, my, I just like, I was shocked because the, the therapist had mentioned the name of someone who was recommended to us as a nutritionist, the same person. So we thought, yay, you know, this, is an, uh, this is an opportunity for Yechever to get to know this person who's giving this yoga class who happens to be a nu- nutritionist. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, she went to the yoga class, which she really enjoyed, and she started seeing this particular nutritionist. She saw the nutritionist for about, um, I'd say for about a month, and then the nutritionist called us up and said uh, she needs a higher level of care. She's not maintaining her, or even achieving her, her weight goals, and she needs to go to residential. So then started the whole search for residential. Um, we searched high and low, and this is also where uh, religion gets gets in the way. Because as soon as we th- we heard residential, okay, we've got to find a kosher place. Of I, b- I believe there are about two in America. One I know for sure, maybe even two. And um, I was having uh, I was having discussions with many people, and one in particular, I can mention his name because he was very helpful along the way, Rabbi Benny Sippel of. Uh, from Chabad of Utah. Yeah, great man. A good man. 
was actually a, was a classmate of mine in Yeshiva in Morristown. Utah, for some reason, is a state which ha- has a lot of, lot of facilities for, for mental health, be it drugs, be it depression, be it eating disorders. So I spoke to him, and I was getting, you know, I was kind of bouncing ideas off him, and I told him something about kosher. And he said to me, I've run me dumb an idiot. You know, just find the best program for her as opposed to the, uh, the kosher, kosher. program. Yeah. shouldn't be in the way. He says, talk to, your, you know, talk to your rabbi. And I thought about it for 30 seconds, and I realized the man's right. And uh, we ended up going to, ended up sending her to a program that he had recommended called Center for Change in Orem, Utah. She was there. And unfortunately, well, first let me say fortunately. Fortunately, she did very well there. Um, unfortunately and sad for us, it, it coincided with the Jewish holidays, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot. She was there for an entire, entire month of, uh, of Tishrei. Um, but she was there and she did well. And actually, they refed her, which is a very big deal. I think she gained you know, many pounds, which kind of got her to her, her weight goals. While at the same time dealing with the psychological components, obviously medicating her and so on, um, she was eventually released um, with a bunch of uh, conditions, you know, for us and for her. The original nutritionist and original therapist were part of the team and they were in touch with the people in Utah. And we knew the, the weight goals and what's considered yellow, orange, and green. Um, and in- interestingly enough, when she came back, uh, she was able to maintain those goals. And she was very, very determined to heal. She really was. It's not like she wanted to, she realized that she has to heal, you know. Um, but um, I think as it turns out, she was healing physically. But unfortunately, the psychological, the depressive source of this illness, you know, did not catch up with that, and uh, and it remained with her. Um, then, in about, let's say, uh, November, literally a year after her first first attempt, she had a second attempt, using the same method, which is interesting because if you know the first method didn't work, why would she use the method again? But she used the same method; did not work. And I'm like, oh no, all these gains we made in Utah will be lost. Um, her mood this time, unlike her first hospitalization, her mood this time was great from day one. She was just in great spirits. She wanted to go home. They wanted her to... Um, now, she just come back. Remember, she just come back from you know residential center, residential facility. Uh, in this facility, they wanted to release her to a another residential facility this time for depression and to address the suicidality and we were like you know just we wanted to just spend a couple weeks at home Hanukkah was coming up we weren't opposed to residential Yechever was adamant that she did not want residential she's more adamant than us I think but um, kind of said you know let's work out the conditions let us spend a couple couple weeks at home and we will consider the residential component in the meanwhile, you know, they were very emphatic that she has to be released to a program. She can't just go from hospital to, to you know, to the to, to home, you know, to home without any rules. They discussed with us many, many rules. One of the rules were we didn't, she didn't have access to her medication. We guarded her twenty four hours a day. My wife slept in her room. 
the same time she was accepted for a day program at OHEL, which was difficult because you know it took a while to get off the, get off the ground, and also because of COVID, a lot of things were not not in person. I just want to say, and I should have said this at the beginning of the discussion. Whatever I say, I'm not blaming anything or any one thing in particular for what eventually happened. Yeah, I don't think that's helpful. All the points over here. Yeah, um, she was doing very, very well. She was doing very well. She was in good spirits. Surprisingly, she maintained her her weight pretty well. Um, we we found out later, and she even wrote about this. She was very brilliant. She wrote about this that if an eating disorder patient is doing well, or even if someone who's depressed is doing well, it's not necessarily a great thing. So, for example, um, we were weighing her every single day. And then when she was maintaining her goals or maintaining her weights, at the advice of therapy, uh, let's not weigh her every single day because it shouldn't be a focus of her recovery. Let's weigh her twice a week. You know, thinking with the idea that she's doing well. Unfortunately, and I think this is the message, that that, that when they're doing well, it's not necessarily a good thing might be that they're kind of resigned to another goal, in this, in this case, suicide. And then they're just kind of giving up. They said, okay, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll eat, I'll, I'll look the way I don't want to look, or I'll be, I'll be happy against my own, uh, against my own uh, wills and desires, and I'll, you know, I'll do well. And she really was doing well. She was happy. She was, she was involved. And uh, we, we didn't allow her to have any money. Because with money she could buy drugs. And when I say drugs, I mean over-the-counter medicine. I don't mean yeah. um, illegal drugs. Uh, she wouldn't be able to buy implements that that she could uh, hurt herself with. And I just posted yesterday. Uh, someone asked on Telenum, "Do you consider yourself an honest person?" And she answered, "Yes, I consider myself an honest person, but not within the in the definition of where my eating disorder presents itself." And that is exactly what happened. You know, as an eating disorder patient, she found ways to kind of manipulate the system and manipulate and to to find ways around the fact that she didn't have any money. It's found ways around the fact that she was being guarded 24 hours a day. And um, so uh, so that's exactly what happened. You know, she she volunteered at a uh, at a local um, place called JLI, who was amazing to her, very helpful. And uh, literally around the corner from our home. My wife would walk her there every single day and pick her up. Two hours a day, we, f we thought everything, that's great. Yeah, because apart from those two hours, you know, she was with us 24 hours a day. At JLI, she was with people all the time who wouldn't know any better. And that's what happened. She went to JLI and she told her co-worker, um, I'll be back. I'm just going to be going for a few minutes. Let me just back up day before that, she had a most amazing day. She went out with my wife and son to a mall. There's, there's pictures, there's, there's video. Having the most glorious day that night, she attended a lochaim of a cousin of ours. She came back. We watched videos together. The next morning, I asked her to make me breakfast. She did. I said goodbye to her. I said, have a wonderful day. As if there's nothing going on. My wife walked her, walked her to her volunteer job at JLI. I think literally within five or ten minutes of her being there, she told her co-worker, um, I'll be back in a few minutes and uh, that's what happened she was not back in a few minutes uh, she used the opportunity to kind of flee the uh, her captivity and uh, 
she, she took her life. That's really uh, that part of the story ends. Yeah, I cannot imagine the pain and the grief that um, <laughs> that you and your family are going through right now. I mean, how you're finding the strength to even talk about this to go on to be an outspoken advocate for mental health matters when most people would be curled up in a ball crying in the corner. You know, I've heard you talk about the firm community focusing on the core roots of the mental health issues, you know, addressing things from when the child's young and the work that we can do preemptively within our schools and institutions, rather than focusing on those who already are in crisis, not that it's too late ever, but I'm saying rather putting the putting focus on that. And both of us obviously needs our attention, but can you elaborate on why you are choosing to put your emphasis on this idea? And what exactly is your philosophy philosophy that you're sharing for the world? You know, like I know that you've written a lot of things on Facebook and maybe it's easier for you to share this message with all of us about your what you have as an idea to go forward, that what we, how we can help our young ones preemptively. Okay. I, th I think you asked like 10 questions over this. I'm gonna try yeah. to remember. I'm, gonna <laughs> I'm try sorry, to remember. I tend to do that. <laughs> I'm gonna try to remember all of them. So first of all, let me say again, just to reiterate, I'm not a professional so this is just my own observations right obviously and i think i just want to say that that's an important piece too like you know yeah. we know that you're not an expert we know you're not a psychologist or a therapist but you're in the partial you're in the experience and you have what to share with us and by the way my daughter who had a degree in psychology helped many other helped many of her friends get into treatment for various kinds of uh, mental health uh, challenges and she if you go and tell them you'll see her app she answers you know many many questions about her journey and giving advice. And she always said, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a therapist and so on. So, so um, about addressing mental health after the fact, I mean, who am I? There are so many people talking about it today and thank God in the, you know, the from community, the Orthodox community, it's less of a taboo than it was 20, 30 years ago. Thank God. Thank We've God. made strides. Right. So we're able to discuss it and it's important to discuss it, especially for those who, who seek care. Um, but I didn't find, as I started this process of, of healing, kind of also accidentally, because um, I, would have, I would not have thought in my wildest dreams that I'd be taking a positive spin on everything. I thought I'd just completely uh, disheveled. But I started writing a lot, and I started sharing a lot, and that for me was very, very helpful. And what I found was that no one's really talking about the fact that um, there's a massive increase today in mental health disease. I think uh, there's a psychiatric nurse practitioner that told me statistics since 2006 has been an increase of 60% among young women uh, of suicide. So what is going on? Why is everybody taking medication? Every second kid is taking medication. Yeah. Like what, what is going on? Um, what is wrong with uh, our society that uh, we've come to this this point, you know, we've made so many strides in different areas, technology and education and openness and so on, but yet there are so many kids that are suffering. To be honest with you, I have more questions than answers, but I think uh, I would like, you know, if those would be the questions, and those would be the, the, the topics discussed because, the, the, you know, the person that's 16, 17, 24 years old, as my daughter's case. We've got to get the professionals involved. Um, but let's talk about the five-year-olds. You know, let's compare 
a five-year-old's life to when we were five years old and how is it different? And uh, we can talk about a few things. Um, I think that when we were five years old, we, we had a lot more physical activity in our lives. We were uh, making our friends. We went to school, we were making our friends. We were not being limited by social media and the internet, um, which is a whole partial subject unto itself. Um, and uh, we're able to develop interpersonal relationships. Um, again, I don't know. I don't know if it's, it's a contributor. I think there's a lot of studies out there that have been showed that um, that um, the the overuse of electronics, and not only internet, just be, being on an electronic device, uh, as opposed to developing this you know interpersonal relationship. Is dangerous. Um, I want to mention someone by name, Rabbi Shagalov, who is a therapist who lives in Massachusetts. I once heard a talk that he gave about uh, the use of electronic media, and what what was so refreshing to me was that I think five minutes of the talk was re religion based, and most of it had to do with uh, with uh, the psychology component. I think the from world, I don't know if you listen, is mostly from or not, orthodox world has missed a, a, ma a major opportunity with this because they catch it within the framework of religion when it's not a religious uh, issue. issue at all. Or about the brain. Mostly not religious, it's about the brain, it's about, you know. Yeah. Uh, if, you go, if you search for, I think his name is Simon Sinek, he'll talk about this dopamine rush that you get from hitting a like, you know, the like button on Facebook. Yeah. Um, so it's really a, a, a psychological issue and we have to um, address it as such. There is also the issue of the overuse of medication. There's a wonderful book called Lost Connections by, uh, by Yohan Hari. Yohan Hari was uh, someone who he himself was medicated for many years and then he went on a journey of realizing that medication is not the, uh, not the answer but rather... Um, Connections, connections with yourself. You can be lonely. You can be lonely in Times Square, or you can be, uh, you know, at peace in your bedroom. You know, um, I'm quoting it from someone I don't remember who, so that's why I can't mm -hmm. give. I apologize if I'm not. Uh, that's fine. Um, giving them credit, but um, you know, every second kid is being medicated. Um, the brain is not something that you can treat like a heart. They think they have all the answers. And here's the other thing that we have to realize, and this is what we, I think we're trusting the medical the the um, mental health profession too much. And here's the reason why. It's a very young science, 50 years old in its, in its current iteration, right? Yeah. I'm talking about post-mental you know, asylum where they would lock people up, you know, in all kinds of ugly places. But, you know, modern modern psychology, modern medicine is very, very, um, is very young science. They don't, they don't have all the answers. Most will tell you they do have all the answers, and that's the problem. You'll, you'll go to a therapist and say, I have the answers, but in truth, they don't. What's more important is that I don't think they're asking the right questions. Um, and that's part, part of the problem. And we, as, as, as parents, as lay people, we trust them. And as I'm starting conversations with um, other therapists, just in discussions, you know, just informal discussions post this, 
I'm finding a few that are really, really humble. Those with amazing, tr- you know, amazing credentials and training, and admitting, you know, we just don't have all the answers. We're going to try this. We're going to try that. Uh, medication is obviously called for, not anti-medication at all. I get that. No, I have to. I have to agree with you. I mean, it's almost sometimes feels as if they throw things at the patient and see if it sticks, and then they try another one, and then they try another one because some people have certain reactions to medications, others do not. So it's it's really a trial and error in many in many in most medications with mental health. It's it's trial and error. Exactly, it is trial and error. But that's but it's not even the the goal. In other words, to have them medicated for life is not the goal. Right. The goal is to have them live as, as healthy people. And I believe medication is a, is a tool to help them be comfortable to address whatever it is that's, that needs to be addressed. Yeah. Um, whether it's depression or, or, or eating disorder or drug addiction and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, so let me ask you one more question. Sure. At the beginning of the question, I asked you, how, what is holding you up? What is giving you this ability to sit here, even to talk to me and and um, go on with get dressed in the morning, go take on, continue your life? What 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 what, are, what is it? I'm feeding off people's appreciation, and I would always tell my my daughter this as well. You know, I, I try to give her advice. I always would tell her, and she did. She was a giver. I said, you know, giving is the best form of getting. You know. Uh, and we can talk about that as well, about, you know, kids doing, you know, physical projects, you know, do something for somebody or do something for yourself, clean up your room, you know, do a puzzle, do something that, do your laundry, do something that you can, you know, feel. And when I started writing, um, I started getting this this uh, amazing feedback. Um, and, and it shocked me. And people started reaching out to me, my friends, people that I knew from 20 years ago. And people that I don't know. These are the most of the people, people that I did not know. And uh, I started feeding off this. And I, I said, what's going on over here? Why are they, why are they reaching out to me? And I, I was very confused because I'm just, you know, one, one father grieving. And, every, and, and the message was, was, was constant. You're helping me. Thank you for, for talking about us. Thank you for being open and honest. Thank you for sharing your, daughter, your daughter's journey with us. So it kind of, uh, you know, one thing led to the other, and I kept on talking about it and kept on writing about it. And uh, I think that's uh, how I met you and your husband, actually. Yeah. And uh, and. So you're saying that your writing is is giving back the feedback that you're getting on this is is holding you, is helping you. It's helping me because I feel that way. I don't feel, you know, I'm a, I'm. I'll tell you straight up. By, by nature, I'm a, I'm a catastrophizer. Yeah. And I do, and I do have in my own life um, proclivity for depression, you know, by one hundred percent. And yet, uh, this has not been my experience in the almost three months since this has happened. Wow. I thought I'd completely fold, but I did not fold. And uh, you know, my message to others that are dealing with this, I'm saying, post not dealing with with kids that are suffering, but dealing with loved ones that unfortunately have taken their lives. And it's a very, it's a very final thing, right? Yeah. The finality with it about it to talk about it, cry about it, you know, don't even know it to us, you know, get together as a family, get, get the family together, cry about it, talk about it. I think it's very, very important. You, uh, if you can't talk about it publicly, like the way I do, you know, get a therapist, get a friend, and really, you know, 
Don't keep it. it Let it out. Don't Don't keep it in. Absolutely. I think that's part of our problem in our community is we're so busy trying to keep everything secret and not talk about it. No one should know that it's eating us up and eating our children up and even more. I I don't find that, by the way. No? I don't find that. that People are trying to keep it a secret. That's great. I respect. I'm happy to hear that. I respect those that are keeping it a secret. But again, we have to remember that many, many parents are keeping it secret for their kids, right? Right, exactly. It's not theirs to share. It's not their story to share. share. Yeah, there are children's challenges and struggles. And and I I didn't until my daughter became became public. Open it with that. Yeah, that's very true, especially when they're, you know, we... We shouldn't mistake that for like some taboo of speaking about it. Exactly. Let me ask you another question. I know that you're not technically qualified medically to give your opinion, but at the same time, Ein Chacham Kibbalah Nesayin. Right. right. There's no one wiser than someone who's being who's been through the experience. So your your reflections are some ways more helpful than the clinical profession opinions. So what about someone who's listening? Okay, who doesn't have a child who's struggling, let's say, with an eating disorder or addiction or a major trauma, but rather a young child who's angry, has low self regulations, is yelling a lot, fighting with their siblings, crying a lot. And you know, a lot of times we think this is normal behavior that she's tired, this that. But what I've seen in my own personal journey as a mom and professionally as a, as a positive psychology practitioner and life coach, we think that it's normal, but usually it's a sign of something simmering underneath that must be addressed. Like the behaviors that we see are like the tip of the iceberg. And a lot of people say, just ignore it. The behavior will go away on its own. I find that that's not true, that we need to get our children that are struggling with self-regulation help. And I'm curious, does this idea resonate with you? What are your thoughts on that? So there's two extremes. It's a good question. So I'm going to criticize uh, cancel culture. Okay. So today everything is, you know, you say one little thing, you know, then it's offensive, right? So we have to differentiate between normal living. You know, people get angry. There's a whole range of emotions that people have. People get angry. People criticize. Parents, as I have, will scream at their children, right? Parents sometimes hit their children, you know, as a form of punishment. Children get angry. Children lash out. Question is, is it chronic or is it normal behavior? If it's normal behavior, then it's normal behavior. And if we try to cancel that out completely, right. then they're not going to be able to have the skills to regulate normal life, real life. Because everything is so protected. Everything is so, you know, cheery that one day there's going to be a, a challenge or a predicament and then how, how we, 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 we fall apart. And uh, before I spoke with you, I was speaking to someone that I greatly respect, and uh, we were discussing this, and she, she wrote to me, she said, you know, if we, we teach academic skills, why can't we talk, why can't we teach emotion, emotional regulation? Yeah. You know, teach kids how to do that. But I will say that it starts at home, because we can't just, you know, rely on the schools to, to take care of our kids' emotions. That's, that's you know, we're a father and a mother. Um, as a therapist told me, though, you know, the therapist told me, you know, at the beginning of this process, when I was feeling very guilty, and you'll find, well, I'm sorry, one will find that, you know, for those of us that have gone through this, the guilt is overwhelming. Yeah. And he said to me, uh, Remy, can you build me a spaceship? And I said, no. I said, well, I said why not? I said, I don't know how. So he said to me, well, that's exactly the same thing with parenting. We learn as we go along. So we try to fix the mistakes of those that came before us, but we, we will never perfectly parent. Right? So, but we try. And but it's up to us, and we can always have to do better, and we always have to pay more attention. And you're right, you know, those kids that are showing 
showing uh, anger and resentment and lashing out, it should be dealt with. It should be dealt with on two levels. Uh, the parents, the schools need to get need to get involved in the in the sense that they need to get out of the way. Mm. Right. Tell I mean, me, like, tell me more about that. What do you mean by that? Because, and I'm still hearing this, right? I'm still I'm still hearing this thing, you know, especially in from schools. That's a, that is still a problem where they dismiss uh, the, the issue. They'll dismiss certain red flags, and that's a problem. And when it's brought to their attention, they'll try to dismiss it. Now they're trying to look good, so many times they, and and, and many times they push, push religion over mental health and so on. And they, you know, let's say they're strict. You know, it has to be done wisely. Let's say there's a whole bunch of you know rules for the school, but if a kid is you know struggling, they should notice that a kid is struggling, and you know maybe a little be a little lenient for that particular kid. They just do it wisely, judiciously, and so on. Um, yeah. And I'm finding that still the, the schools are not getting are not getting out of the way. I can tell you, a parent that called me, a close friend of mine, and he and he said to me, "Remy, I need your advice." And it's something someone that I work with a lot. He said to me, "My daughter is eight years old." is counting calories on a cracker. Because why? She was bullied at school and she was fat shamed. And, mm. th- and the school is not of weight by any stretch. She's a normal looking girl. Um, so I said to myself, and I said to my wife, I said, I don't, if, if, I don't even know how to count calories. I don't know what that, what that means. That an eight-year-old had the wherewithal to figure out how to count calories. And, you know, going back to the school, you know, he tried a few times speak to the school and you know talk to the kids that are bullying and so on and it took a while and i said to him you got to put your foot down you got to really put your foot down call the print you know and i don't know so, so you know be very clear about the fact that they got to stop this right away because it's a huge problem um bullying is also, is also an in, uh, uh, a problem on the internet and i'm told by those in the profession that it's a bigger problem bullying yeah. on the internet is a bigger problem because you're more comfortable to talk about things behind the screen than in person. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. It's more systemic. It's more painful. So um, what you're saying, what I'm hearing you say is that parents need to be advocates for their kids, meaning don't just take things sitting down, you know, be on top of the schools, be on top of your child's care, do what you can at home, be proactive as possible to help your child. Don't wait for somebody else to help step in. You need to do everything you can to help your child. Yeah. And there's, an added, there's an added component. It's a mess. It's it's a messy experience. Ugh. Why is it a messy experience? Because every every parent wants to be their child's friend. Yes. And that's not a good thing. You're not no. your child's friend. You're your child's parent. Right. Your your job as a parent is to to bring them up and teach them values. Show you know teach them resilience. Yeah. And to re- and to and to have them teach them how to self correct. So oftentimes when you're going to discipline them, I speak to to to, to parents who. So I, I I can't take the, the sorry I can't take I can't fight with my with my twelve uh, year old and have a smartphone I can take can't take it away I mean uh, you know, they're it's scared be a of the, they're scared of the tantrum they're scared of the of the kids said, reaction said, just take it away I mean you know it's not it's not good for them just take it away so yeah. um, I think that's also something that parents have to realize they should they should and you know what let's be humble and go to have, get parenting lessons and uh, learn these things and not, try to not make those those errors. 
Also, yeah. in addition, I think a lot of us tell ourselves, oh, everyone's doing it. Everyone's child has a smart smartphone. This is society. We can't just stop them. We can't take it away from them. And they try to normalize it. And I think that's excuses that we tell ourselves so that we could not have to do the hard work because taking it away is the hardest thing. I know in my home, I have set limits of, of, of you know, iPad or iPod usage. And I'm fought back on it. They fight me tooth and nail. They will sell anything for some. What age? All ages. Screen time. There's the biggest um, the so fights that we have. Is, ask anybody, why, why are you giving to them in the first place? That is true, too. I did it. That is me. very true, too. I, I and, did and, it. And, 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 and it's it's become our babysitters in many ways. It's just the easiest. I don't think our parents were raising us even had this option. There was nothing that kept kids this quiet ever. And that's the, this is the repercussion of that we're seeing. And it's, it's so hard, but it's so important. Um, there's another very interesting thing I want to add about the internet. Okay. Um, you're not possibly talking about your kids on the internet. You're just talking about your kids. Using no, no, I'm not talking about internet. I'm talking about, oh, it's well, tens. I mean, here, here and there, it's like, you know, watching a video. Um, I don't think it's straight up social media, stuff like that, but it's apps, it's games. It's all those buzzing lights and things chiming in and that dopamine release in their brain. That's right. It's it's a it's not a good thing. No. Um, I was interviewed by Dr. Raj Prasord, who's a psychotherapist in England, for a documentary he was doing, and he shared with me a very interesting thought about the internet. He used the word dismiss. He said that young children and even young adults are not able to um, expose themselves to the internet and dismiss that which is bad and retain that which is good. We only develop that later on in uh, mid twenties. And which is why the internet is so dangerous uh, for for children, for sure, and even young adults. And this is coming from someone who has no knowledge of the Jewish Orthodox community at all. We're talking a lot about the internet, of course, but there's other stuff, you know, about uh, you know regulating and being being parents, not being friends. I think that's very, very important. Very important. Not having to be friends, you know. Yeah, I just I want to ask you another question. Sure. And um, this is a very personal question, and. As a parent of a, you know, children, my own child who's struggling with some, you know, emotional challenges, I know that it brings a lot of pain. And I speak to parents that have children that are struggling, and it brings pain and difficulties for the rest of the family, for the other siblings too. And there can be, an, at times, like a tiny voice that wishes for it all to end. And naturally, it's not what the parents really want. And there's an incredible amount of guilt even just verbalizing this. But just at the thought, in, in a small in a small way, there's a sense that if it if it ended there, that be if it ended, there'd be a small measure of relief that it's final and it's over. But at the same time, it's such a painful thing to even think about or even discuss. But I know that parents of struggling children sometimes do have those thoughts and feelings, and they feel guilty about that, and it hurts them that they even can think this way. Can you speak to this idea at all? Um, when you talk about end, you're talking about one's ending of one's life. Is that what you're talking about? I, I think so. When I, I don't think people, parents think this through all the way, but when you're dealing with a child who is, you know, has suicidal ideations or has struggling with addictions or be it whatever it may be, right. eating disorders, I mean, they all stem from a mental health issue. There's no addict out there that's using because they just want to annoy their parents or not eating food because they want to hurt their mother and father. It's just all coming from pain. So, so I guess I'll, I'll answer that as a, as a father. I'll answer that as a Jew. Okay. As a father, not for one second. Not 
not for one second did it ever cross my mind. All we wanted was healing. And we were positive that there's going to be healing. Not only were we positive, but uh, my daughter was positive as well. She wanted to heal. She wasn't able to in the end, but she wanted to heal. So not for a second. Um, does it mean that um, others in the family pay the price? Of course. I mean, that's to be, I mean, that, you know, those that, that would deny that would be lying because there's an, you know, uh, you know dis disproportionate amount of energies, you know, given to your children and those that need it more, others are going to lose out. And it's, yeah. you know, we know that and we try to make up for as much as possible, but it's often not the case. So wishing it to end? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And then we can follow this into the Jewish way. Um, you'll find when people have physical illnesses um, uh, that in many cases when someone is terminal, the patient or the family you know, makes a decision to cut off a life, su life support and so on. We never do that. You know, us as Jews, we never ever, Orthodox Jews, we never ever ever do that. Right. We hold on to the very, very last moment. Right. So that's part of my DNA. I don't think it has anything to do with the fact that, you know, the first part of your question, I don't think any parents would think that way. I can tell you that I'm part of a, 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 an elite group on, not elite, a, pr a private uh, group on, on Facebook, uh, parents of children who have lost their lives, mostly non-Jewish. No one has that sentiment. No one ever had that sentiment. I can tell you from talking to a lot, a lot of parents. Wow. No, nobody ever has that thought. Um, yes, everyone feels, you know, has feelings of guilt and so on, but no one ever thought wh while they were alive that, well, we wish we this would end. Nobody has that thought. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I know that's a very loaded question. If you could talk to the schools or mchanchim and teachers and yeshivas or of like parents, like they were just listening to you and you would have to, you know, give them a short message, what would your message to them be? What would you tell them from your experience? Uh, I'm not sure you you're asking about Chabad. I, I I don't think it matters. I think any Orthodox, non-Orthodox. Okay, well, let's talk about the Orthodox Chabad. What you know, whoever's listening in their world. I think it's let's talk about the schools, our system that yeah, we find system. our our systems. Yes. So number one, like I said, they have to get on the, this page. Where they have to you know be willing to recognize when there's a problem. But we have another problem uh, in that 20 years ago, uh, no one talked about it. No one talked about uh, professional help. Today, we talk about it a lot. And we bring in psychologists and we bring in therapists and uh, all kinds of things. We're open about it much more than we were 20 years ago. And what's being put by the, by, by the side is the Torah review. So my message would be that both are necessary, right? So, for example, Tanya, which talks a lot about, uh, you know, sadness and human feeling and emotion and so on. If a kid is chronically ill, do you, do you open up a Tanya and heal them? Of course not. Tanya was written for healthy people. Um, just like you don't open Tanya if you had the cardiac event. But at the same time, they have to coexist. Us mm -hmm. as religious Jews, we have to understand that it's Torah that gave the ability to the mental health profession to give us advice. You know, the doctors, it's through, through God's hand and so on. But we always have to um, 
we have to include um, what Torah. And in our case, we're lucky as Chabad Hasidim, a Hasidic thought which you know plays a large role in human emotion and has to be combined. It hasn't been combined yet. Uh, organizations have reached out to me in the firm community. Uh, you know, on wanting me to be on, on on board with them and so on. And I asked them, you know, here you are psychologists and therapists, where you're a bonny, where you're mashpim, and they didn't have. I said, well, when you get those, you know, let me know. So I think both are necessary. Yeah. That's one message. I well, think. so just in keeping time short, I, I have so many more questions I, I want to ask you. Okay. Um, I know this is so very loaded and, um, I just want you to know that I'm grieving with you and I thank you for your public work that you're doing to share and help others. Um, just wanna ask you if any closing thoughts that you'd like to share with everyone on mental health or on eating disorder specifically, on surviving or surviving and grieving at the same time, if that's possible or anything that you'd like to just leave us with. I don't have any, I mean, that's again, you asked me 10 questions. I'll just say that, uh, <laughs> I'll just say that positivity is something that we, we, we abide by as Chabad Chassidim and, and for everybody out there, if anybody wants to contact me, they're welcome to and keep on getting educated. Get yourself, you know, an, 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 get your hands on any book, podcast, education about mental health. It's, it's more prevalent now and more important now than it ever was. And just remain open and honest and empathetic and humble and know that, uh, you know, ask the questions and know that you're not going to get all the answers, but Ask the questions. Always, you know, dig, 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 dig. Keep digging. And never this rest, our, especially as a parent. It's our. It's like the obvious. We're always digging dead wells. I, I, I spoke about yeah. that. We spoke about that in the like that idea of just constantly searching. Keep on digging yeah. within ourselves, within exactly. what's in the Torah, what's available with Chassidus, and yeah. with within psychology and mental health. What's out there for us? Like you said, that's a very great point that you said. Um, that you know, Tanya is good for somebody who's healthy. To learn how to live a full life and meaningful life but it's not necessarily we have to look a little deeper for somebody who's sick who is not well and we need to look at it as that they're not choosing this this is something that hashem has given them and we need to help them battle this yeah, i think the rebbe though did talk about when choosing a therapist try to use a from therapist interesting it's there's, there's, very interesting there's a lot to be written about that i don't know the source but i can i can get back to you there yeah I think I, I, I'm sure there's plenty of that. And, I, and I've also seen how for some people, it depends on the person. I think if somebody themselves is not necessarily on that path and is in a different path, they need to find the right therapist that fits 100%. their... So I apologize for making that statement in a way because no. it obviously has to be qualified. Because I remember, I remember, right. I remember yeah, I think it's... And also another piece that I find very important is that some people will say, I found a therapist, but it didn't work. I tried, I tried. This is... It's not like a one size fit all. And it's not like an immediate... You know, it's... It takes years. It's progress. It's slow. We need to find the right person. And if you don't find the right person, don't give up. Try again. Keep trying. Let's just never give up on our children, on ourselves, on our spouses, our family. And may Hashem bless us with continued health and nachas from all of our children and Amen. our Amen. families. Again, thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. Truly appreciate that. You're very welcome. All the best. Take care.